I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. It's no surprise that there's an inextricable link between housing and mental health. Our expensive Bay Area has made that abundantly clear. Streets are overwhelmed with people who can't afford a place to live and who don't have access to proper mental health services. Take Alameda County. In the past three years, homelessness has spiked about 22%. According to a recent survey, there are nearly 10,000 unsheltered people in the county on any given night. There's a wide range of estimates for how many homeless California residents struggle with severe mental illness, but a recent Alameda County grand jury report says that it's upwards of 75%. That's made obvious by the number of people who cycle in and out of emergency rooms and jails, because that's what many mentally ill people who lack resources face, criminalization or temporary hospitalization. Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle housing reporter Lauren Hepler joins me to talk about what's broken, specifically in Alameda County. That same report from the county's grand jury highlights how Alameda County is not only ill-equipped to address the intersecting issues of mental health and homelessness, but that it also lacks a basic consensus on what solutions should be. Behavioral health gets a half billion dollars in funding each year in Alameda County. What's not working? Lauren Hepler, thanks for joining me. Hey, Cecilia. Thanks for having me. So, Lauren, your latest reporting highlights a pretty damning report that looks at how Alameda County's mental health system is making the region's homeless crisis worse. Before we dive into the specifics, explain how this report came about. This report was actually part of a holistic review of county services that the grand jury undertook. And what it ended up drilling down into when it came to the mental health safety net is how this whole patchwork of of systems is kind of failing to catch people who are either on the brink of homelessness or who may already be on the street in jail um, or in hospitals in some cases and finding that symptoms are getting worse. So it's kind of this complicated relationship where someone could already be very sick or they could be in a vulnerable position where the kind of craziness of Uh, the housing market and and ending up homeless can then make things that much worse. And like you say, the overall findings of the grand jury were not good. One witness uh, told the grand jury that finding solutions seemed like, quote, shooting in the dark because of how little data we have about these systems. And so what are the main symptoms of how the county's mental health system is impacting the homeless population? How does that play out on the streets? So the upshot is that the system is, quote, fragmented and unresponsive. And and what the grand jury says that looks like is sick people often being sent to jail instead of mental health treatment. We don't have enough emergency mental health beds or long-term supportive housing for, for people who need ongoing support if they have a severe condition like perhaps schizophrenia or other disorders. And a real problem in the meantime is, is that family members are often and left to navigate this on their own, but crisis phone lines operated by the county, for instance, aren't staffed by real people at night or on weekend hours when police say these crises often happen. So that's when you maybe end up with someone being sent to jail when they're in a, a real moment of crisis and otherwise there might have been a chance to, to kind of intervene. 
And one activist described this all to me as playing Frogger, that computer game where you're jumping between cars on a road. So it's not meant to be like a a flippant description, but more to illustrate that people can get dropped in between fragmented phone lines and service referrals, um, which they actually went so far to describe as a form of kind of administrative violence uh, where the, the system is just really repeatedly failing people. You spoke to some of these families that have had to navigate this system. What were some of the other things that you heard from them? I mean, uh, it, it was pretty jarring and, and gut-wrenching stuff. Um, a lot of them spoke about this cycle of cycling in and out of jails, emergency rooms. Um, there's a type of 72-hour emergency hold called a 5150 that a lot of folks have had to call in for family members who are in the grips of like a really severe breakdown. And then longer term, that can lead to, you know, conflicting diagnoses on and off medications. And when you combine that with this overall lack of safe places for mentally ill loved ones to live, it can be a really volatile situation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Alameda County spends half a billion dollars to address behavioral health. So which agencies are getting that funding? What resources are getting that priority? Yeah, so as you say, that half-billion-dollar figure relates specifically to the county's Behavioral Health Services Department, and they run the main crisis line that's supposed to get people into the system, which is formally called a continuum of care. Um, That's a similar kind of model and term that you'll hear for housing. Uh, Like when someone is homeless, you're supposed to call this phone number to get into the whole system, but maybe that's when you run into the kind of frogger scenario and it can get murky from there. The Behavioral Health Services Department also oversees the kind of limited number of mental health program slots that advocates say really needs to increase. And they work on longer term housing, which, as we talk about pretty often, is kind of an overarching, daunting goal for a lot of communities. And there's just kind of a frustrating lack of progress on that. How this breaks down when you look at the mental health system is that there's kind of this complex system of contracts where some service providers say they're running out of badly needed funds when they've got a solution that seems like it's it's working and could serve more people, while other streams of money just kind of keep going. And the the problem the grand jury says is that there's no concrete data on the reasons people are falling out of the system. So the the one major takeaway is just that things are too fragmented. It's hard to keep track of. We're not doing enough to try to keep track of it. And, and you know, it's like that old saying, unless you measure something, you're not going to be able to improve it. Um, I think that's one of the, the key things here that we'll, we'll look to see whether the county does indeed follow through on that. One thing from that report that was striking to me is that there isn't a consensus in the county for solutions. You mentioned earlier that someone compared looking for solutions to shooting in the dark. Tell me more about that. What kind of impact does that have? Yeah, you're totally right. I I mean, the one thing I would be remiss as a housing reporter not to point out that there is consensus on one thing, and that's that there are not enough beds, either at the emergency level in what they call the sub-acute, like when someone needs ongoing intensive care level, or when it just comes to long-term 
housing that is affordable for people, everyone agrees that that's a massive issue and it's hard to go on with with that still being the case. That said, there's a big lack of consensus on what to do in the meantime. And it often breaks down into families saying, hey, we need help. We need more support from community health officials and others to intervene in situations that we are frankly not trained or equipped to handle versus civil rights groups that are saying, hey, you know, like even if someone has a severe psychiatric disorder, they still have civil rights. They still deserve due process with the legal system. And the the latter part of that, the legal system is an especially big concern because in the last nine or so years, there have been around 50 verified deaths in custody at Alameda County's main Santa Rita jail. And that's led to families like that of Logan Masterson, who was 37 years old when he died by suicide at Santa Rita. And and his family has since sued saying there was not adequate mental health support and, and supervision to prevent that from happening. So it's something that's coming to a head uh, when it when it comes to lawsuits and just, you know, concern about human suffering. More with Chronicle housing reporter Lauren Hepler after a quick break. Alameda County is not alone in trying to tackle the vexing combination of mental health and homelessness. So how is the state trying to help local communities? Lauren will chat about that. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Lauren, context is important when we're talking about mental health issues in Alameda County's homeless population. We know that five decades ago, California's overall mental health system was disrupted when they started closing state psychiatric hospitals and they began relying more on community facilities. What has that done to local counties? What kind of holes are they trying to patch up? Yeah, so this is the kind of the key dynamic that's laid out in the grand jury report and lots of other analyses of what's kind of gone off the rails here. And so it, it dates back to, yeah, the 1980s are often cited as kind of an inflection point when Ronald Reagan was governor and moved to close state mental hospitals. We tried at the state level to um, subsidize local treatment centers where they could live at home and be um, with, with the development now of newer drugs and so forth, drugs in the good sense, that they could be um, uh, outpatients. Those were supposed to be replaced by local facilities, but many of them were never built. And on top of that, we've had um, moves for a lot of reasons to release low-level offenders from jail. So collectively, these things are known as deinstitutionalization. Um, and again, there's a lot of complicated reasons that those decisions were made, but the upshot is that you've got a support system that was never rebuilt. And when you combine that with this limited number of available beds now and intense pressure on the families of folks that are severely mentally ill, it manifests in a really painful and kind of jarring way that we all see in our communities day to day. So then, Lauren, would it be fair to say that Alameda County isn't isolated in these kinds of challenges. Probably a lot of other regions face similar issues, right? Yeah, you're completely right. This comes up in San Francisco when you talk to advocates there. In smaller communities, it can be at times even more jarring if you're a suburban or a rural area that has 
uh, a smaller budget or fewer community groups that are, are participating um, in, in trying to solve mental health and homelessness challenges. Um, the, the grand jury describes it overall as kind of a complicated two-way relationship between homelessness and, and mental health. So if you don't have resources to tackle that, it can just become kind of an ingrained problem like we see in a lot of California communities. We've already seen this movement to decriminalize mental health, and there's also this growing awareness that jails are really dangerous for people who are mentally ill. Governor Gavin Newsom has a proposal to tackle these problems with something called care courts. What are they? Yeah, care court is like the topic for a lot of folks who work on these issues. And the basic proposal is to allow families, first responders, and others to involuntarily enroll people with schizophrenia and other severe psychiatric illnesses into year-long court-ordered treatment programs. The catch is that if that treatment program isn't carried out, it could lead to conservatorship, which is where um, your rights to control your own financial assets and other decision-making powers are passed on to someone else. So, uh, it, it's controversial for that reason. Like I said, there are some families that really support this. They say, you know, I've gone for years or decades in, in some cases trying to get a family member help, but other groups feel differently. Because with a court-ordered treatment program, if someone's not able to meet that, they could face penalties, right? Yeah, exactly. That's where the conservatorship would come in. And I'm, most people know of conservatorship because of Britney Spears. When her father took over her estate, uh, control of her finances. Free Britney! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Free Britney! And we know that she later contested that and won in court. But so civil rights groups argue that um, even putting that, you know, up for consideration is too extreme. It violates due process for people who, even if you have a psychiatric diagnosis, are, are owed legal rights. And it also conflicts with sort of the, the broader push to move away from punitive legal systems and, and sort of threats. So then, Lauren, going back to Alameda County, in light of this grand jury report, are there efforts underway to address these findings? Yeah, there's a lot happening. Advocates and family members described it to me as kind of a groundswell of activism around these issues. Some family members told me since the, the late 90s where they've been trying to sound alarms about these systems. Um, what seems to be different now is that it's coalescing with the defund police movement that was sparked by the 2020 racial uprisings and um, the fallout over the conditions in jails like Santa Rita that I mentioned. So while all these different groups of advocates don't agree about everything, like the care courts we were just talking about. They're all strong advocates of alternatives to jail, of more beds, and of more community input on services. The trouble in the meantime is, again, just this glaring lack of, of places for people to be that are safe and affordable to live, and also just getting a, a handle on uh, the data, like one of the things the grand jury says is that when it comes down to it, Alameda County, frankly, doesn't even know if they're meeting the needs of the community right now. And until you get a better handle on that, it, it's kind of hard to make uh, real substantial progress. We know that substantial progress on these really big issues is hard, but what are the most immediate things underway in the county at the moment that could make some difference? 
Yeah, so one thing that's already in motion is this uh, new Care First Jails Last Task Force that Alameda County signed off on creating last year. So it's already kind of coming together. But one of the things that task force members told me is that it's been stunted by, again, this overwhelming lack of data. Like if you don't have information about the programs you're tasked with improving, how are you supposed to start proposing how to improve them? They're actually formally requesting data from the county to try to sort of agitate and push this forward a bit faster. There are other sort of incremental things that are happening at the budget level as well. This year, Supervisor Nate Miley tasked the county administrator with coming back in January with a funding plan for a $50 million redesign of the behavioral health system. And there's also a relatively small scale plan to add a few beds of capacity back at the Villa Fairmont Treatment Center um, that previously had been contracted out to other counties or other agencies. So it's, yeah, it's not going to address the glaring immediate need on our streets, but these are certainly all things that could lead to bigger changes down the road. Lauren, thank you so much for your reporting. I appreciate it. Thank you. Lauren Hepler covers housing for the Chronicle's race and equity team. Her story about Alameda County's grand jury report is out now. You can read it on sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Thanks to King Kaufman and Melissa Newcomb for the production help and to you for listening. <laughs> 